Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. This week we're in the Americas, digging for cultural gems in the new world. And don't worry, there is plenty of booty to share. We'll begin in Canada with the critically acclaimed indie pop singer Feist. Then we'll whiz south to Brazil. There we'll find out all about the thriving art scene in the colourful city of Sao Paulo. And finally, we'll finish in California, where we'll explore a dreamy new film that depicts the life of one Afghan refugee in the city of Fremont. First up on today's show, Multitudes is the latest release from Canadian musician Feist. This deeply personal album was written during lockdown in the pandemic when she was celebrating the birth of her daughter while grieving from the death of her father. Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Rossiter, sat down and spoke with a singer-songwriter about her latest album. Now, this was recorded backstage at a festival, so please do forgive the errant beeping at the start of this interview. Multitudes, when you first started it out, the concept of it was to create it through residencies in Hamburg, Ottawa, and Toronto. Did that end up working out the way that you had hoped it would when you first set out plans to create this album? Well, yeah, I mean, the album came, I guess you're right, as a result of that residency. And the residency came from the lockdown at the moment where it felt like nothing can happen again. There's maybe never going to be life again. No, nothing we ever knew before. And at some point, I would say probably six months into it, my manager called me up and said, you know, I have a sense that there's going to be this sort of like halfway hybrid opening again, where there will be some sort of reduced capacity shows. And we had been brainstorming a tour that almost depended upon reduced capacity for my previous album, for the album Pleasure. And we kind of left that all by the wayside because it was impractical. You can't really sustain a tour when you're trying to sell as few tickets as possible. It doesn't really, I suppose, work that way. And he said, no, 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 that idea would work now because we'll have access to performing arts centers and there's a chance that we'll get to use huge spaces in a different way. And so the show developed kind of to create an envelope for that otherwise empty piece of time. And the residency, really, it became something other than what I'd gone in imagining it would be because I had just gone through the, the birth of my daughter and the loss of my father. It was sort of, I was very on the surface. There was no guile left in me. I had been leveled, and actually the show was this sort of egalitarian, experimental socialist theater sort of thing where I wanted to level the playing field. The way shows have always happened is there's an innate separation between whoever's performing and whoever's receiving the performance. So to even that keel, I was on the same stage as the audience and there was a lot of kind of bringing me on an eye-to-eye level with people who I knew had just gone through the exact thing I'd gone through, like variation thereof. I did it twice a night, so there was also this sort of formalist repetition aspect to it that lent itself to almost like a hypnotic state of repetition through, with different audiences and I would often find the same kind of common ground it became kind of a like I felt like everyone there were ended up performing for one another because it was also in the round 
And so just being a person next to another person was a radical experience again. And that made for a lot of new types of exchanges to happen. It was really special. The opening track really hits you when you first hear it in Lightning. It's just so powerful. All the music, I absolutely love it. When I first initially heard it, it had a bit of remnants of early Bjork. What was the influence for that song? It's super powerful. I can't stop listening to it. Oh, well, thanks. Well, I guess it was all informed by the record that came before Pleasure. I joke that it's as far as I could go into the world of lo-fi. Like I went as deep into what I considered to be a kind of absolutely raw recording experience, a sort of producerlessness. Like the noise ceiling was very high. And when you listen, when you turn it on, it's almost like this the hiss of the room is as loud as the music in the room, which is kind of what it's like when you're performing. You know, there's a lot of ambient sort of white noise, brown noise. Like my toes were at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I could go no further into lo-fi. And so I guess I became interested and kind of compelled to turn exactly 180 and go as far in the other direction as I could. And I'd never really let myself be, I suppose, unmasked. There's some safety in that noise ceiling. There's sort of a you know, it's like a soft lens. So to make myself starkly encounter myself in an unmitigated, nothing in the way, no, no effects that are, I guess, softening the edges of a performance, it was really interesting to see how deeply I could go into that clean, bright, crisp, I guess ASMR in that sense, that it's with the imagining people with headphones on, it just being as close to your ear as possible. And Enlightening was a good, a good place to play that out because the kind of repetitive chanting chorus is sort of a cluster chord that I was interested to figure out that there was a way to make that buzzing sensation that an amplifier usually has or that loudspeakers have if you make a chord that's close enough to itself that it's almost distorting. In many ways, there's a lot of thought experiments that converged and became a lot of the things that go on on this album. You played around a lot with musicality on this album, but being a mother to a young infant at the time of the production, how did it influence your songwriting? I was more prolific than I've ever been. I wrote more and more quickly than I've ever in my life. Your thoughts are sort of these staccato bursts of sort of minutiae, just dealing with whatever, dealing with the small stuff. There's not a lot of time to go into longer form thought, but songs are kind of this container, this perfect container that can be about a split second or they can be about a hundred years or eternity or it's in this four minute form. That That's the form they come in. And so there was a dare to myself to just use time, expand and contract it, force a four minute reality to occur more quickly and she influenced a lot of the songwriting in that there was so little time and also some friends of mine gave me the gift of this game kind of called song a day where a group of people over the course of seven days half each one of us has to write a song every day and you submit it to the captain and then he lets everyone hear what the other people found that day before and if you miss a day you're booted out there's sort of this positive, good-natured peer pressure, but the, the stakes are kind of high in that you're, oh, yeah, I need to stay in. I just, there was something about the emptiness of the pandemic and lockdown 
that it was also a kind of a camaraderie. I think during the pandemic, when there was no other access to your friends, that was a really intimate and intense way to get to hang out. It's now it's shortlisted for the Polaris Prize. That is the largest prize for a Canadian artist. How does that make you feel when you found out that you were shortlisted for your latest work? I feel grateful that it's been received, I suppose, in in a personal way. What I appreciate about the Polaris is that it's it's not based on sales or radio or, you know, it's, it's really just sort of a crowdsourced <laughs> sense. There's a feeling of it's about the work itself. In that sense, I'm really grateful because I, I, I feel like it's a really personal... It was an inward-facing record, more than any I'd ever made before. The sense that it's found people in a private way, too, individuals in in that way. I guess the people I'm interested in reaching are walking their dogs with headphones on, you know, or, or, you know, they're they're on a long drive with the stereo. There's sort of a sense of of my privacy meeting their privacy. And so, in a way, the Polaris represents a whole bunch of individual people finding something of merit, and I, I am proud, you know. A couple weeks ago, you you were in Toronto, and with Choir, 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 you did the tribute to Sinead O'Connor. How important was her music to you? Oh, she was a foundation for me. I was in a band in Calgary, and I think I didn't really know other women singing. There was the scene I was in was mostly guys, and I would say for the most part, with rare exception, our band had three women in it. I didn't really have any singer models or people that I really listened to besides, you know, Sarah Vaughan or stuff that didn't really communicate with what I was doing as a teenager. But then Lion and the Cobra showed up and actually debut Bjork. Those two records, I remember laying on the floor of the the basement jam space we had in my drummer's parents' house and listening to Lion and the Cobra and just my mind not understanding and just feeling I tried to word it when she passed away that there was something in her that was not an aesthetic it was of course beautiful it was powerful but it was it communicated with something else in me some other place that kind of was apprenticing for what music is for or why even to do it in a way she she threw the gauntlet down for using your words carefully and meaning each one of them and I mean her conviction of course is like part of unfortunately her downfall there it was long before cancel culture was known to be a a movement and she was kind of I would say a casualty of so much hate related to the way she spoke of her reality of her truth
That was the Canadian singer Feist in conversation with Monocle's Sheena Rossiter. Next up, in the years preceding last year's election, Brazil, under right-wing leader and former military man Jair Bolsonaro, underwent something of a cultural ice age, actively pursuing anti-culture measures. For example, disbanding the culture ministry itself. Well, that was just the tip of an iceberg that made for a depressing environment for many in Brazil's art community. With Bolsonaro and his brand of culture wars gone for the time being, and President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva sworn in at the beginning of the year, what is the mood on the ground in Brazil's contemporary art and financial capital, São Paulo? Monocle's David Pleasant was there, and he sent us this report. Opened in 1951, the Biennale de São Paulo is no ordinary biannual art jamboree. Held in an enormous purpose-built pavilion designed by the great Brazilian modernist architect Oscar Niemeyer, it is the second oldest such event in the world after Venice. On opening week, this enormous metropolis is teeming with a palpable artistic buzz. Artists, gallerists, curators and collectors from the city, Brazil and all over the world gathered and the anticipation was particularly acute after the previous scaled-back 2021 rendition which took place during the double-whammy doom and gloom of the pandemic and the government of Jair Bolsonaro. Alongside the Biennale are Sao Paulo's teeming commercial galleries that play a crucial role in this cultural moment. They too are shedding light on both the enormous wealth of Brazil's artistic diversity and the darker chapters of the country's recent history. I'm Marcelo Palota from Mapa Gallery, Sao Paulo, Brazil. We have this gallery for eight years now. Uh, working between the 50s and the 80s, as we call the Brazilian modernism period. So that's the, the, the period that you define as the most important in terms of your work as a gallerist? Yes, yes, especially in Brazil because we have the dictator military yeah. since 64. And that has a, a immense impact in the artists during this time, especially because they not are very allowed to, to show anything. So there was censorship and political that, repression. Lots of that. Marcelo Pelota there on his Sao Paulo-based gallery Mapas efforts to rescue Brazilian modernist artists, mainly painters, from obscurity. Those were the sounds of artists Aerson Heraclito and Tigana Santana's installation titled Ago, The Blessing, on show at the Sao Paulo Biennale. Another gallery reframing the way we look at Brazilian art, but this time in a completely contemporary context, is Galeria Milan. I went to their cavernous space in the city's Pinheiros neighbourhood and met Director General Henna Lee. I think our history has been very hegemonic in a way and very embedded or very like with the vision of a very Western art history mm. with the influence, of course, of Europe or the US and etc. So Brazil has been following that history and uh, 
I think the past years there has been like revisionism in art history. So I prefer like instead of using the word of reparation, more of revisionism, because reparation I feel that in this is personal opinion, you put the indigenous narratives of black narratives and minorities narratives in the place of victim, and it's not about that. It's also like putting them in the protagonism lead, no? Speaking to Henna Lee, it seems clear that Brazil's fervent and diverse cultural conditions makes it well-placed to be an interlocutor for the many of the world's artist communities that have, until recently, been underrepresented. Henna told me about two artists she represents in particular, the late indigenous artist Jaida Esbel and African-Brazilian Rio-based painter Maxwell Alexandre and whether she thinks the art market will finally be open to them. I hope this somehow reverberates or somehow like echoes to other art systems too. I think one thing that is quite important is like Jai, that when we started working with him, it has never been about representation because he, he verbalized, like, you don't represent me, I represent myself, but we do a commercial partnership and you have the exclusivity to sell my works. So it was very clear about the borders and agreements. And he said, I don't come alone. So if you want to work with me, I want also to propose other artists. I think Maxwell, likewise, propositions of Jai, that Maxwell is also one of those artists that understand their agency within art and elsewhere, like in, in different kind of like ecosystems. And Maxwell, for me, is like, he's 33 years old. So he was, um, he started working with this papel pardo, we call it, in Brazil. And pardo is when, is a color that is not, it doesn't actually define anything. So according to Maxwell, um, for example, you have a birth certificate, you will have to put your, your race or your color, no? And pardo is pan for anything between white and black. Mixed. Mixed. So this was the sort of terminology yes. of, of racial categorization. Correct. But as Maxwell says, and he really like um, affirms, this is also part of a, you could read it also as a part of like whitewashing as well. That was Director General of Galleria Milan, one of Sao Paulo's most influential and successful contemporary art galleries. The next sounds of the Sao Paulo Biennale you are hearing are from the collective Frenchy Tres de Fevereiro's piece, Came Policia a Policia, or Who Polices the Police? Finally, we go back to Marcelo Palota who, with the help of a foreboding portrait of Brazil's president from 1966 by artist Ismaina Coaraci, takes us back to the subversion and spirit of artistic rebellion that was felt during the country's military dictatorship. It belongs to Ismaina Coaraci, a female artist, political one, mm -hmm. and she did that painting for the first and only Biennale of Brasilia. And the Biennale of Brasilia happens in 66, just after the, the dictator happened. Okay. 
So it was something that was planning before, and the, the military decided, oh, let's do it because it was planning, and you know, and they get really, really upset because all the artists are political against them, especially this. So it's a way so, of uh, rebelling, re revolt, revolt, and also it's a smart way of revolt because if you see the painting, you didn't realize what exactly is the critics but the critics is very underlined it's like you know big hands it's like shadow on the face the 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 brazilian presidency of you know sash sash yes yeah mix it up so it's it's very intelligent uh, uh critics yeah and they didn't know about it from subversive portraiture to finally expressing political and social agency through art, Sao Paulo, both through its bewildering biannual and thriving commercial galleries, is showing that despite a difficult recent history, with its extraordinary diversity, Brazil can transfix the world with its artists. For Monocle in Sao Paulo, I'm David Pleasant. Many thanks to David Pleasant in Sao Paulo with that report. And finally, the Californian city of Fremont plays host to one of the largest Afghan communities in the US. A new film takes its title from the name of that city and follows a young woman, Donya, played by real-life Afghan refugee Anaita Wali Zada. Fremont follows Donya as she struggles with insomnia and tries to reconcile her past life as an interpreter in Afghanistan with her present world, working in a handmade fortune cookie factory. The film is hazy and pensive and shot in black and white, and it also features the bear superstar Jeremy Allen White. Monocle on Culture producer Sophie caught up with Fremont's director, Babak Jalali, to find out more. Where are you from? I'm from Afghanistan. I've never met an Afghan before. You seem like a friendly people. We are. I'm just not a good example. Fremont is this beautiful film that follows an Afghan refugee in America, in Fremont. And the film has a very particular look and style. It's all shot in black and white for those people who haven't seen it. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about how you um, kind of got to that style and created the, the sort of very particular mood that the film embodies. Well, the decision to shoot it in black and white and in, in that kind of ratio, in that aspect ratio, was taken quite late on. When me and uh, Carolina Cavalli, the co-writer, were writing the script, I imagined it in colour. But just before pre-production, I don't know, I just had a sudden urge in my stomach um, that this film should be in black and white. I don't have a real eloquent or intellectual reason. I just It was something very... Uh, I just suddenly felt very strongly about it. And it had to do with the tone that we wanted to create and based on the locations that we had in mind. And the tone, you know, it's a mixture of, let's say, melancholy and humor. And um, telling a story about a displaced person. Often films and cinema tend to show those experiences through the realm of, I don't know, social realism. And I wanted to get away from that because I just didn't want a situation where the audience are pitying the character. I wanted them to be, the character to be more relatable. And hence I thought this kind of tone and this style would be beneficial to that. It works so well. And I wanted to pick up in particular there, you talked about the kind of melancholy and humour and 
Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the humour within the film. It's very particular, but it is very it is very present and it's it's often quite surprising. Um, but there are some very funny bits. The humour was always important in the film because um, from the writing process, because I mean, kind of related to the, my first answer, it, it it just she finds the character and everyone else in the film, for that matter find themselves in these sort of absurd situations, particularly the lead character, Donya, who's the Af- young Afghan woman who's been resettled in America. The whole experience of displacement in many ways is quite absurd. And um, f- focusing on this character who has this determination to navigate this uh, craziness, I don't know, I just felt with, with having that bit of um, humor, it would just be possible to humanize her more and have people make a connection to her, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. And maybe kind of picking up on that sort of absurdist element, one of the fantastic things about this film is Sidonia's job is working in a fortune cookie factory and it seems so kind of perfect for a lot of the themes and the kind of underlying messages of the film. And I wonder when you kind of landed on that as one of the the settings and what it was about the kind of fortune cookie and working in a fortune cookie factory that you wanted to kind of explore and really get into. I don't know how long ago it was, a while ago, several years ago, me and Carolina went to San Francisco and the original producer of the film, Marjana Morimi, took us to a fortune cookie factory in Chinatown. And me, um, I was just struck by the visuals. I mean, the aesthetics of the place. They were still making these cookies in machines that had been around for generations. And I just thought, oh, it would look ama- this would look amazing on film. I had no idea how we would incorporate it into the story. It was Carolina's idea that Donia uh, should work in the fortune cookie factory because, you know, Carolina said, um, the film is essentially what we're writing is about the idea of possibilities. And basically, uh, fortune cookies tend to do that. You know, they never give you um, sort of a grand um, predictions. It's more about alluding to the possibility of possibilities. And we and Karen said, you know, if Donia starts working, then she's entrusted with, uh, given the responsibility of also, besides her own pursuit of um let's say, possibilities, uh, she could be entrusted with also alluding to other people's ones as well. Yeah, so she becomes the person who's writing the fortunes that go into the cookies, which is just a kind of, yeah, a lovely idea that there is someone sat there who was thinking up all of these little sayings to put in them. And I guess one of the things that there is really important is language and how you use language and how you can kind of, yeah, write about hope and possibility and and the future. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about working with the actor who plays Donya, who herself was was a uh, broadcast journalist, I believe, in Afghanistan before coming to the US. And and I heard that she'd had to kind of pick up her language skills, uh, English language skills, very quickly to play the part. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the, the casting process and also what it was like to work with her. I got to Oakland, uh, next to San Francisco, which is where I was based during the shooting of this film. For the casting, you know, we did an open casting call through social media and also Afghan community centers in America saying we're looking for a young Afghan woman to play the lead role in a feature film. No prior acting experience necessary. On my previous three films, I predominantly worked with non-professionals, so I wasn't worried about that. 
But what was worrying is, was that we weren't finding the correct person. So the people who replied to us were second generation Afghans scattered around America. And uh, they just, I just didn't feel they could connect with the character. And then suddenly, uh, after a while, uh, Anaita Walizada, who ended up getting the role of Donya, wrote me an email saying, hello, I'm Anaita, I'm uh, 21. I just arrived five months ago in America, in Maryland, near Washington, D.C. I left Afghanistan when the Taliban returned five months ago on one of those evacuation flights, left most of my family there. I've never acted before. And my English is not great, but I'm interested. So I responded and we set up a video call. And from the moment I saw her, um, I knew that she was perf- she would be perfect because of the way she presented herself and because of her own personal story. Okay, she was not a former translator, but uh, she had, you know, at this young age, been, had to escape Afghanistan in quite horrific conditions and, and was starting her life from scratch, essentially, in America. So uh, we thought she could bring her, I mean, her own personal story was not so different. And yeah, so without having seen her physically, um, we cast her and she flew to the West Coast. And um, she was so determined and she was so, um, how should I say, because of course it's completely nerve wracking uh, to do this. She's in almost every frame of the film and she had never experienced this and it wasn't in her own language. But um, she was just so determined and her English, uh, she was working on it all the time. And yeah, so I think um, that's how, yeah, that's how it came about, basically. And it's such a, a stunning performance. Babak, thank you so much for, for speaking with me about Fremont. Thank you. Babak Jalali there. And Fremont is in cinemas now. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Sheena Rossiter, David Pleasant and all of our guests on this week's programme. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Goo, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in.